Amen. Let's pray and give thanks. Heavenly Father, once again, we are delighted that you would so be pleased to call us to this place at this time that we might celebrate the life that we have in Christ Jesus. New life, Lord. And be reminded that through his power, through his love and might, and ultimately through his resurrection, that we have new life now and ultimately perfected life to come. So this morning, we pray for your spirit that he would come and enlighten us all the more. Point us to Jesus, who indeed is the author and the finisher of our faith, the one in whom we have all things and through whom we sing all praises and offer our thanksgiving. Come now, Lord, teach your people, instruct us in the ways of faith. We pray all these for the sake of him who indeed is risen and who lives forevermore, who is our faithful God and King, Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. You know, the interesting thing is, is that every major religion and and faith has some teaching on the afterlife. You study the various faiths and you study the various religions and all of them have some answer to the question of what happens when we die. In fact, this is one of the fundamental questions raised and answered in philosophy and in religion. In fact, no worldview is actually complete without asking and answering the question, where did we come from and where are we going? Therefore, you study the various religions in the world, the various sets of beliefs and faith that are found in the world and you see a, a various types of teaching on what happens to us when we die. Hinduism and Buddhism believe in some form of reincarnation. And reincarnation being the belief that when we die, we don't cease to exist, but rather we come back. We come back to life in another form or as another person in another place. This is why some of you have these deja vus. Think you've been here before. You've seen this scene played out before. For some, what determines how or, or where you come back in this life It's called karma. It is the idea that we are rewarded or punished based upon what we did in our former lives. Whether good or bad or evil, 
In both Hinduism and Buddhism, the goal is to actually break out of this recycle bin. To get off of this Ferris wheel and to reach a state of liberation, of release. In Buddhism, that state is called nirvana. In Hinduism, it is moksha. Islam believes in the afterlife as well. Islam believes that one is rewarded according to the deeds and and according to the faithfulness that one lives in accordance with the commands and the laws of Islam. And those who die enter into a sort of lifeless soul sleep. And there you are, just lifeless, and your soul is sleeping until the day of judgment. And then at the day of judgment, those souls will be awakened, and they will receive reward or punishment in accordance to the obedience that they offered the laws and commands of Islam. Some even believe to be awakened unto a state of eternal bliss and pleasure. Even ultimate sexual gratifications. Catholics suggest that there is a such thing, there is a such thing as purgatory. Purgatory being that when somebody dies, everyone must go through this purging or cleansing before you're actually able to enter into heaven. This time is some type of limbo. It's determined by the nature of your sins that are unconfessed when you die. And so nobody knows exactly who's in purgatory and nobody knows exactly how long you have to be in purgatory. Here's the interesting thing. That according to the Catholic catechism, you can actually help your friends or family members who are in purgatory. By your prayers, your fasts, your alms, your indulgences, and even having masses for them. Jehovah's Witnesses teach the doctrine of annihilation. That when a person dies in the unbelief, away from the beliefs of the watchtower, that they will not be punished in hell eternally, but they will ultimately be annihilated. They will just be totally, totally destroyed, that they will become extinct, burned up, as it were. Oh, beloved, the Bible teaches neither annihilation, neither annihilationism nor purgatory. Bible knows nothing about reincarnation, or soul sleep, or nirvana, or moksha. Instead, what we see taught by Jesus over and over and over again, and taught by the apostles over and over again, is the glorious doctrine of the resurrection of the body. This is what Jesus taught concerning himself. 
This is what Jesus promised to those who would follow him. But Jesus, throughout all of his earthly ministry, demonstrated this power over life and death. And not only just to the forgiveness of sins, but to the raising of the dead. And this raising of the dead is a foreshadowing for those who would follow Jesus. And those who would believe upon him would be raised as well. As he is coming into Jerusalem for this last time, as we've seen over the last few weeks, as he's coming into Jerusalem and is about to face the crucifixion, once again, he reiterates the importance and even the non-negotiable aspects of the faith, namely, the resurrection itself. As we saw last week, Jesus has come into the temple and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees and the scribes have determined that now it is time to bring an end to this man, Jesus. He's upset it. He's upset the folks in the temple. He's upset the religious people in the temple. He's upset the money changers in the temple. He's offering himself as some moral and theological and spiritual authority surpassing that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And they've had enough. And so they're going to team up. And they're going to come to Jesus. They can't destroy him morally so they're going to destroy him in the estimation of the people by tricking him up in his teaching and get the people to see that actually he is not the teacher that they think he is actually he is not the man of God that he proclaims to be but he is indeed a man who is full of error He is a false prophet. And we saw last week that he dismissed the Pharisees. The Pharisees and Herodians came to him and they came to Jesus trying to trick Jesus up. They're going to ask him a trick question, try to put him on the horns of a dilemma. And then they were the ones who were tricked. It seems like now, however, the Pharisees step into the fray. They look at the, the, the Sadducees step into the fray. They look at the Pharisees and they say, boys, step aside. We got this. We've known all along that you weren't up to the task. And now you've just proven the point. Step aside. And so now they take their turn. They're going to diss Jesus, having dissed the Pharisees. They're going to get Jesus to engage in the absurd. They're going to get Jesus to have to engage in a silly, absurd question. And if they can get Jesus to engage in the absurdity, ultimately they believe that Jesus is the one who is going to appear silly and absurd. 
So they asked Jesus a silly question. Now, we tend to say and we want to say that there are no stupid questions. But this comes awfully close. Who are these people? Who are these Sadducees? Well, they were a small sect of of people. They were a religious, priestly class of people. They wielded much influence and, and power, not because of their great numbers, mind you, because they were relatively few, but they yielded this influence and power because of their money and their social status. They were educated. They were the elite. They were taken up with the intellectual and the philosophical aspects of the religion, the Jewish faith. They did not have time for angels. Acts chapter 23 and verse 8 reminds us that they didn't have time for spirits. They didn't have time for the afterlife and they had no time for this idea of the resurrection. They were religious people because they believed in the first five books of the Bible. They believed in the Pentateuch, the books that are credited to Moses. They believed that that is the sum total of the revelation that God has given to his people. Just the first five books of the Bible. And that the Pharisees had taken the rest of the Bible and kind of extrapolated their own ideas and traditions upon how people should live. But those who really understood the scriptures, according to the the Sadducees, understood that really God's word was contained in the first five books of the Bible. What God gave Moses, that's what God intended for his people. And since they thought that there was no teaching in those books on the resurrection, then the resurrection could not be true. Even though the Pharisees taught it over and over again, even though the vast majority of the Jewish faith proclaimed it over and over again, the Sadducees looked at the first five books of Moses and said, no resurrection. And so, they not only disliked the Pharisees, because the Pharisees taught error, they disliked the scribes, they disliked the Herodians, but even more than all of that, they disliked Jesus. So on this occasion, they piggyback upon what the Pharisees were doing, and they come to Jesus with a question. And the question that the Sadducees set before Jesus is both hypothetical and hypocritical. The question is hypothetical. You understand that, right? It's based upon Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 5. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 5, what the Bible here establishes for the Jewish nation is what is known as a Leverite marriage. And this is the idea that if a man marries a woman and they do not have children and the man dies, 
In order for his heritage and his lineage and even his property to be maintained in the family, the next brother in line is to marry that woman, bring her into his family, and they are to have children so as to continue the lineage of the dead brother. This would maintain the legacy. This would maintain his possessions. This would maintain the inheritance. Indeed, this would maintain the memory of the man. You see, this is what happened in Ruth, chapter 3 and and chapter 4. And the law was clear. This is what was to take place. But But the Sadducees, seeking to exploit and use the word of God, not for God's glory, but for their own ends, which is to bring an end to Jesus, like the Pharisees before them who asked a trick question, the Sadducees are going to ask a hypothetical question. Now, the Pharisees did not ask a hypothetical question. That was a legitimate question. Should we be paying taxes to Caesar or not? That's not a hypothetical question. That's a question that people live with every day of their lives. That was a common conversation that was happening in the temple and throughout people's homes. The Pharisees just wanted to trick Jesus, and so they ask a legitimate question, but they ask it seeking to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. The Sadducees don't ask a trick question, they ask a hypothetical one. Jesus, based upon the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 25, can you you answer this question for us? And the question is, is that there was a man who married a woman And the woman died without children. I mean, the man died without children. And then the next brother married her, and he died without children. And the next brother married her, and he died without children, so on and so forth, till all seven brothers married her, and all seven brothers died, and she died, finally. Now, Jesus, according to this teaching of the resurrection, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? You know, immediately when you hear that question, the first thing you want to ask, well, who is this woman? (laughs) Who are y'all referring to? Who is this woman? I mean, Sherlock Holmes would have had a field day with this one. I mean, after the first one, and after the second one, perhaps after the third one, we begin to ask questions about the woman. Can you imagine the conversation that would be going on amongst the brothers? Looking at each other, the third and the fourth one beginning, you're next. You're next, and by the time they get to the fifth one, the fifth one is probably saying, you know, we probably need to take her out. (laughs) And you laugh because it's so silly. It's so ridiculous. The question is ridiculous. Ridiculous. 
It is the folly that is the, 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 the nature of the unregenerate mind to be engaging in the absurd in the face of God and truth. It's like those who want to ask questions like, can God make a rock that's too big for him to lift? It's absurd. It's silly. Here you are standing in the presence of deity and your conscience convicts you of your sin and you are standing in danger of hell's condemnation and you want to ask the absurdity questions. But this is what human beings do. Rather than deal with the truth claims of God and Christ Jesus and the faith that we profess, they want to engage in the conversation at the level of the absurd. This is the Sadducee. Absurdity of the question. It's in the Sadducees' mind to demonstrate the absurdity of Jesus' teaching on the resurrection. However, beloved, these are they like the Pharisees who profess themselves to be wise. But they are foolish. They are silly. Because we know the Bible reminds us that the foolishness of God is wiser, wiser than any man. And the question is not only hypothetical, the question is hypocritical. But the Sadducees don't even believe in the resurrection. Why are you even asking the question? You don't even believe in the premise of the question. That there's a such thing as the resurrection. And to ask the question is with no other intent but to discredit Jesus and to make Jesus sound ridiculous. It doesn't help. It doesn't hurt that also in their mind, they're going to make the Pharisees look ridiculous as well. This is self-serving. This is God dishonoring. It's blasphemy. It reminds us of the nature of the human heart, just how wicked it is. The human heart indeed is deceitful. It is wicked. And the only ones who don't seem to understand that are us humans. So immediately, if if it was me, I'm looking at this these Sadducees, and I'm saying what Proverbs 26 and verse 4 says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be like, like, but lest you be like him yourself. And so I'm tempted to just dismiss this foolishness. Come back to me when you gain a little sense about yourself so that we can have a legitimate conversation. But Jesus being so much better than I am, he goes on to Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 5, where it says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. The folly of the Sadducees is that they perceive Jesus to be a fool 
And they want to make God out to be foolish, to be absurd, to be lacking in understanding and wisdom. But here's the thing. And this is where Jesus is not like you and I because Jesus is never in danger of answering a fool according to his folly and therefore becoming like the fool. And so Jesus can answer the fool in the midst of the folly because Jesus is not going to become like the fool. He's going to expose the fool and the folly. And he answers them. He answers the hypothetical. He answers the hypocritical with this indisputable answer. He says, point blank, you're just wrong. You're just wrong. Okay, you're just, you're wrong on all accounts. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Their lack of understanding of who God is led to their lack of understanding of what God does. They didn't know who he is. Because they didn't know the scriptures. And because they didn't know who he is, they couldn't know what he does. And therefore, they didn't know his power. They knew not the power of God. For they perceived that the resurrection was nothing more than a resuscitation. They're speaking of the resurrection as if the resurrection is just God bringing people back to life. But the power of the resurrection, beloved, is not resuscitation. The power of the resurrection is transformation. That this is going to be a transformed life. Resurrection is not bringing back to life. Resurrection is the impartation of a new life. And so in this sense, we often talk about the resurrection of Lazarus. But you know, Lazarus was not resurrected. Lazarus was just resuscitated. Lazarus was given his life back to him. When he came out of that tomb, he came out of that tomb with his body. He came out of that tomb with his mind. But it was not a new body. It was not a new mind. It was the same old body just brought back to life. He had the same old struggles when he got out of there. He had to deal with indwelling sin for the rest of his life. He had to grow old and anticipate dying again. How about that one? This is what they didn't understand because you see it in their preoccupation 
with marriage. With marriage. Which reveals their lack of understanding. You know, marriage is a good thing, and, and we know that, and we, we honor that. We honor that marriage is a good thing, that it is a thing from the Lord. But we too must understand that marriage belongs to this life. Marriage belongs to this body the way these bodies are presently constituted. In fact, the reason that God even gave marriage in the first place, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 2, that the Lord looked at Adam and he saw that Adam was alone. And he said, it is not good for Adam to be alone and therefore I will give to him a wife. Because marriage belongs to the state of aloneness. In the resurrection, there will be no marriage because we will not experience aloneness. There will be no marriage because there will not ever be a sense of being separated and on your own. There will not be a sense of discontentment and a lack of fulfillment because in the resurrection, we will find our contentment and fulfillment in Christ. You know, I know my wife cannot imagine, imagine, imagine life without me. If I'm gone for a day, she's trying to figure out how she's going to go on. <laughs> and in the resurrection, beloved, when you come up to her and say, where's Tony? She's going to say, Tony who? <laughs> Let me tell you about Jesus. Because, beloved, in the resurrection, there is no separation. When we have been given new bodies, we have been given new minds. Our minds will have been perfected. They won't long for any of the fleshly things that are in this world. Our bodies will be made perfect so that there will be no more physical discontentment in ours. We will find all of our satisfaction, all of our fulfillment, all of our joy. In Jesus Christ. In him alone. It is not just the power of God, beloved, to give us breath again. It is the power of God to give us life again. But it's not just any life. It is a new life. It is new bodies. It is new minds. It is bodies and minds perfected in holiness. It is bodies and minds perfected in love for God and for Jesus Christ. As one author said, the resurrection is not normal life. Again, it is new life altogether. And we can't even begin to fathom that. I mean, the the, the Sadducees didn't want to fathom it. We can't even begin to try to fathom it. 
Because we are so earthbound. Because sin has so blinded our eyes and corrupted our emotions. We can't even begin to know what it would be like to be totally, absolutely contented with Jesus. What the Bible says, this is our promise. First John chapter 3 and verse 2, it says that it has not appeared what we shall be. But when he appears, we shall be like him. As he was raised from the dead, so too will we be raised. Incorruptible. Perfect. Satisfied. In God. In Jesus. Jesus tells them they knew not the power of God. Then he reminds them, not only do you not know the power of God to resurrect and give new life, but you don't know the word of God. And because they had such a truncated view of the Bible, they failed to see that the resurrection flowed from the very personhood of God himself. Notice what he says. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush? Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. Contrary to what the Sadducees thought, Jesus here is teaching them and showing them that the resurrection that the power of God to raise from the dead his people as he promised is on display all throughout the Bible because it's on display wherever God proclaims his name. It says, what God tells Moses In the self-disclosure of who he is, God says to Moses, I am the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not I was, but I am. And they still yet worship me like the angels, Jacob, Abraham, And Isaac are yet gathered around the throne of God. And they are gathered there like the angels. And all of those saints who have gone on to their reward. Those saints in their souls who have been made perfect. Gathering around the throne of God. The assembly of heaven. The church triumphant as it is gathered there in the heavens. Singing shouts of hallelujah, shouts of glory, shouts of praise. They are not dead. They are alive. 
And yet, it is more than just the fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are yet alive. The promise is not that when you die, you go to be with Jesus. The promise is that your body will one day be reunited with your soul. So the promise here is not simply that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive in heaven. The promise is that one day their bodies will be reunited with them. And they will know an existence of not just life, but resurrected life. You know, this here reminds us that God is not a dead God. That God is alive. And so too are his people. And if the Sadducees had just read a little bit further in the Bible, they would have seen this clearly taught. If they had just opened their Bibles and kept on reading, they would have found Job saying, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. If they had kept reading, they would have saw God saying to Ezekiel as Ezekiel was told to look out upon that valley of dry bones and God saying to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, can these bones live? If they had just paid a little more attention, they would have heard Jesus himself saying, That I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. But this is the power of God, not unto resuscitation. This is the power of God unto resurrection. This is resurrection power. This is what Paul desired. In Philippians chapter 3, where he declared that I want to know Jesus. I want to know Jesus in the fellowship of his suffering, but also in the power of his resurrection. Because this, this, this is the power that is promised to the Christian. It is not just getting your old life back. It's getting a new, improved, even perfected life in soul and in body. This is the hope of the Christian. This is, this is the hope, beloved. This, this, this is all, this is the substance of who we are as Christian. Notice how Jesus ends. He ends this answer just as he begins. For he says to them, you are quite wrong. Twice, twice he says to them, guys, y'all are wrong. 
But you're not just wrong. You are badly mistaken. You are way off base. Why does he say that? Because, beloved, to deny the resurrection is a serious matter. Jesus had already proclaimed it no less than three times previously that he would die and that on the third day he would be raised. And as we'll see next week, it is the heartbeat of the Christian. It is the non-negotiable of the Christian faith. It is at the purpose of Christ coming into the world. We are resurrection people. That's who we are. Every Sunday we come into this place. It is a visible proclamation to the world that we believe in the resurrection. You don't have Christianity without the resurrection. This is why Jesus says, guys, you're dead wrong. You're dangerously wrong. You're way off base. Islam denies it, and we say to them, you're dead wrong. Hinduism and and Buddhism denies it and dismisses it, and we say to them, you are dead wrong. And anyone, whether they profess to be a Christian or whether they read in their Bibles or whatever they're doing, if they deny or dismiss or disregard the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we say to them, you are deadly wrong. Because the resurrection is not a take it or leave it proposition for the Christian. It is not a take it or leave it proposition for the church. If you believe it, if you believe that God is the God of the living and thus has raised Christ from the dead and he has promised to raise you too, if you believe that, you can be saved. And beloved, If you deny it, as the Sadducees did, and refuse to believe that Christ was raised from the dead and promises to raise his people as well, and if you dismiss the resurrection as absurd and not worthy of your time this morning, then not only are you wrong, but you are in danger of eternal damnation because you are not only calling it foolish, but you're calling God a liar. And this is nothing, nothing to play with. This is why God tells them twice, you're wrong. You're badly. You're grossly. Mistaken. Jesus not only proclaimed the resurrection to the Sadducees, he would go on in a couple of days to demonstrate the resurrection. You know, the Sadducees would be no more. Wouldn't be long. 
before there were no more Sadducees. And they were sad, you see. Because, beloved, at the heart of all truth, of all power, the heart of the word of God is a resurrected Savior. We sing the mighty power of God that makes the mountains rise. And more importantly, we sing the mighty power of God that raises the dead to life. If you don't embrace that, you cannot be saved. There is no salvation outside of the resurrected Jesus. You must believe that not only was he raised, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, according to the scriptures, but that you will be raised as well. Let's sing the mighty power of God, yes. But know the mighty power of God that raised Jesus from the dead and know that he will raise you too. Because if you don't, You're just wrong. You're just wrong. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, indeed, we sing the mighty power of God that makes the mountains rise, but even more important than making the mountains rise, the power of God cause our Savior to rise. It's the power of God that will cause us to rise on that great resurrection morning. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for the power. We thank you for the word. We thank you for the revelation. We thank you for eyes and ears and, and hearts where we can see and believe that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Has promised that we would be raised as well. Oh, Father, I pray that is the confession of everyone in this place. There's no one who would leave here who doesn't believe in the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of your people. We thank you. We glory in your name. We pray it all in the resurrected saviors. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.